Do you have any questions about anything we've covered the first two weeks? First two chapters. We're going to finish chapter two before we move uh, into chapter three tonight. We began talking last week a little bit about the authority of God's Word. And I think I told you the major teachings of the Bible about itself can be classified into four characteristics. There's the authority of Scripture, the clarity of Scripture, the necessity of Scripture, and the sufficiency of Scripture. And we're going to try to cover those uh, tonight. Now, how would you define authority? When you're thinking about authority, what jumps into your mind? Someone in power. Someone in power. You think about power. Anybody else? Control. Control. You know, the right to give orders. Expectancy to be obeyed. Um, to make decisions. Should be knowledgeable. Authority, when we think about authority, it, it is a, uh, a right that, is, uh, that someone has or something has and that uh, requires submission on the part of uh, other subjects. And so in the context here tonight, thinking about the authority of Scripture, the authority of Scripture means that all the words in Scripture are God's words. And in such a way that to disbelieve or disobey any word of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. Now you think about that for just a moment. That the Word of God is, the, the Bible is the Word of God, and that Word of God is authoritative in our lives. To the point that if we disobey any word in there, we essentially are disobeying, disbelieving God. Puts a little different slant, a little different perspective on the importance of the Bible and what it says. Does it not? It does for me. <laughs> so all the words in Scripture are God's word. And uh, this is what the Bible claims for itself. Uh, many times the Bible will say things, use this kind of phraseology. It will say, thus says the Lord. Or thus saith the Lord, depending on what translation you use. Uh, the Old Testament, this phrase would be like saying, the king says. And um, one of the best illustrations of that is in Daniel. Remember Nebuchadnezzar? When they built that huge image out there, and when he built that image, he offered a decree to all the people. Remember? What did he say? He said, this is what the king says. The, the herald, the crier, whoever it was, the messenger went out and said, the king has said, you shall bow down and worship this image. This is the worship for the land. It's decreed by the king. So that carried authority. And it was the kind of authority that when Daniel and his comrades decided not to obey it, they were, they were committing treason against the empire. And so they were punished for that. And so when the Bible says, thus says the Lord, essentially that's what it's saying, is thus says the Almighty King. And the prophets were claiming to be messengers from God when they uttered these words. Thus says the Lord. And this occurs hundreds of times in the Scripture. Literally hundreds of times. God is said also to speak through the prophets. Uh, for instance, when Moses went to Pharaoh, God told Moses what to say. 
You remember what he said? I think I told you Sunday. Tell them that I am sent you, but what else? Let my people go. So that was a message that God put in the lips of Moses and told him to go speak it. In the New Testament, several places indicate that all of the Old Testament writings are thought of as God's Word. 2 Timothy 3.16. Let me see. Let me give some assignments here on, on uh, verses. Uh, I'm going to start on this side of the room with Mark. Mark, you take 2 Timothy 3.16. You've probably got it memorized. Close. <laughs> Close. Neiman, uh, you want one? Yeah. Take 2 Peter 1.21. Uh, Russell, you want one? Uh, Matthew 1, 22 and 23. Bob, Matthew 4, verse 4. Paul, you want to take Matthew 19, 5? Burma, if you'll take uh, 1 Timothy 5, 18. And Shirley, if you'll take Luke 10, 7. And Kenneth, if you'll take 1 Corinthians 14, 37. 1 Corinthians 14, 37. David, First uh, Corinthians two fourteen. Tony, John ten twenty seven, and we'll hold it right there. So Second Timothy three sixteen. All Scripture is God breathed. All scripture. Oh, you were trying. You were trying to do it by from memory. Huh? <laughs> that would have been impressive. All scripture. This is the NESB version. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God. I need to stop there. Training in righteousness. Okay. 2 Peter 1.21 For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Matthew 1.22-23 And while this was done, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be the child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which interpreted is God with us. Matthew 4.4 4. He, but he, Jesus, answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Matthew 19.5 Therefore a man shall leave his father and his, and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Alright, what you've got, 2 Corinthians 3.16 uses this term, graphic, which... Uh, can be translated as writings or as scripture and it's used I want to say I can't remember the number off the top of my head like 50 times and referring to New Testament it's the same word it's implying in that verse that all scripture particularly to begin with all New Testament scripture is inspired by God it doesn't stop there, but in the interest of fairness to the discussion, 
it's used again. 2 Peter 1.21 says that all the scriptures not come from some man or men designing what they're going to say, but as the Spirit of God has carried them along, God has spoken, inspired His Word uh, into these men who wrote it down. Now we've got different versions of this. Matthew 1, 22, 23 actually quotes from the prophet Isaiah. All right, so a lot of that happens in the New Testament. In fact, every Old Testament book, but I want to say five, are quoted at some point in the New Testament, which serves to be credibility that the Old Testament and the New Testament all fit into this category of graphe, of Scripture, you know, of the writings, these holy, sacred writings that have been inspired by God. Uh, in Matthew 4, 4, Jesus is citing Deuteronomy when he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word the Lord has given. So Grapha includes all the New Testament writings as well as the Old Testament writings. 1 Timothy 5, 18 for the scripture says, Do not muzzle the ox while it is treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. Okay, Luke 10, 7. Stay in that house, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Okay. Do not move around from house to house. Okay, I don't know if you pick up on what happened right there, but Paul, Paul writing to Timothy, says, The word says, and then he turns around and quotes, Jesus from Luke 10 where Jesus said that the laborer is worthy of his wages. Okay? So you see this interaction and this acceptance that all of these different places in the Word of God and what we know as the Bible is being referred to in this way as the Scripture that God has inspired. Okay? The... Um, 1 Corinthians 14.37 Okay. that he is a prophet or spiritual he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord okay Paul is saying the things I write are coming from where from the Lord from God so he's claiming uh, he's claiming that his writings are, are scripture and that's what you get here is you've got uh, claims coming from different places in support of what we find in the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, as being the Word from God. We are convinced of the Bible's claim. So the Bible claims to be the Word of God for itself. Then we are convinced of the Bible's claims to be God's words as we read the Bible. It's one thing to claim the Bible is God's Word. It's another to be convinced of it. I had a conversation this week with someone who was asking me about sharing the gospel with people and how you do that. And I said, well, there are lots of things we can memorize. We can memorize a lot of presentations for people, but the most effective way involves two things. One, 
is to pray. Pray for them, pray for yourself. The second thing is to convince them or challenge them, get them in some way to read Scripture. As they begin to read Scripture, God will do what no one else can do in somebody's heart. If you can challenge them, say, read together, read with me the Gospel of John, and, and we'll talk through it, you know, a chapter a week or something. Because we think about sitting down and reading something more from an objective standpoint. We sit down and read for content. It's like maybe you've been reading this book that we're using to supplement what we're studying. But it's not the same thing. When you get someone to read the Word of God, the, the Scripture teaches us that the Spirit of God will take that Word and make it come alive. And that the Spirit of God, who was involved in inspiring the Word, illumines, gives light to and understanding to the Word of God. Now, it doesn't happen in every case. This person may be hardened. This person it may, be, may not be God's timing yet. Or maybe this is someone that's never going to put their faith and trust in God. We don't know that. But having them read the Word of God is the best way of them becoming convinced that this is the Word of God and that God is who He says He is. Okay? Somebody that is maybe thinking about they want to come to Christ and they have this conversation and they'll say, Well, I just don't know. I don't know. I don't, want, I don't know how to believe. I want to believe. And my challenge is always, if you want to believe, then tell God you want to believe and open up His Word and start reading. God will not disappoint you. You know, if you tell Him you want to know, you want to hear Him speak, you want to know truth, and then you go to the place where truth is, which is His Word, I guarantee you He's not going to pass you by. It's not the way He works. He doesn't frustrate those desires if you're serious and sincere about it the holy spirit is critical for us to become convinced that god is speaking and he does that in conjunction with the word of god not you know we like to give out tracts and we like to uh, share presentations of the gospel which should always involve scripture but the most effective tool is to get them to read the word of god for themselves and watch what god will do in them and through them first corinthians 2 14 who has that one david The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to, folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Okay. The natural man does not understand the things of God. What does that mean, Paul? Well, it's simply that uh, without the Spirit guiding him, he just doesn't have the ability to... Uh, understand it that's right that's exactly it it's not any more difficult than that we have this idea that we can just flip the switch and and you know we can get up tomorrow if i'm an unbeliever i'm unregenerate i'm a rebel against god that i can get up tomorrow and flip the switch pick up you know a track and i can decide well you know this is going to resonate with me that's not the way the bible describes it we studied it in john chapter six unless the holy spirit draws Unless the Holy Spirit regenerates and gives someone the ability spiritually to hear from God, it just falls on deaf ears. It's like listening to a foreign language. You know, that's why when you start talking about spiritual things to some people and their eyes kind of glaze over, you know, they're, well, you know, I, I got to go. I got things I got to do. 
It's a natural person that you're trying to talk to about spiritual things and there's no ability to hear and appreciate those things. And when God gets involved and starts drawing them, starts moving and working in them, they perk up and they start paying attention to what's being said. And God begins to do things in them that you can't convince them of. And it takes a lot of, when, when you realize this and accept this, it takes a lot of pressure off our shoulders when we think about sharing our faith. That our job is just to share the truth. God's the one that's doing all this stuff behind the scenes, either working in them or not. And so you, all you have to do is read the tea leaves, if I can use that expression. You know, if, if somebody, you're trying to share the gospel and they're not having any part of it, don't waste your time. Move on. Keep praying for them. Next time you see them, try again. But at that moment, you know, God, there's nothing there drawing them. There's no attraction. You can read that body language. You can hear that in their voice. If they're not interested, you're just, you're just uh, wasting time and energy there. Move on and look for the next one and pray that God has already been working on that person and that they're ready to receive. John 10, 27. My sheep give ear to my voice, and I have knowledge of them, and they come after me. So basically, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. They, they know me, and they listen to me, and I know them. It's not any more complicated than that, is it? As people read the Scripture, they hear their Creator speak. Other evidence may prove helpful, but not ultimately convincing. Now, what does that mean? That means that any book, you know, books are good. I love books. I've got bunches of books, and I like to read books, and I have to read books, and, and they bring, they bring uh, help in understanding different things, but books are not where we find the ultimate answer. You know, books about the Bible are not what we need to be looking at. We need to be looking at the Bible. Books, of the Bible are, books about the Bible are great supplements, but only if you're in the Bible, Right? That's right. No substitute for being in the Word of God. And I don't care who the author is. You know, no one who's writing books today is inspired of God because there's no new revelation, right? The words of Scripture are self-attesting. This means they cannot be proved to be God's Word to a, by appeal to a higher authority. People will say to me, and again, I was asked this question this week, well, um, let's see. How was the question phrased? It was, um, how can you convince them that this is God's word and that salvation, the plan of salvation is real and they need to listen? I said, you can't convince them. You will never be able to convince them. If you can convince them, somebody else tomorrow can convince them of something else. You know, what you're asking me is can I find a higher authority that will confirm and validate the Word of God? And the answer is no. You can't. And it, it leads to this, to this problem of a circular argument, you know, that we know this is the Word of God because it claims to be the Word of God. It claims to be the Word of God, and I believe it's the Word of God because it is the Word of God because it says it's the Word of God. And people will say, well, that's a circular argument. Well, yeah, it is. But everything that you do when you're claiming authority is always circular, isn't it? When you, you know, when 
And my parents did this when I was a child, and I didn't like it, and I heard myself doing it when I had children, and they didn't like it, and now I hear my children with their kids doing the same thing. And here's the way it goes. Mom, Dad, can I do such and such? No, you cannot do such and such. Why? Well, because it's dangerous, because this or because that. But why? I don't understand that. Because you can't do this or that. But why? Because I said so. Right? And that's, that's the trump card, right? There's no more discussion after that. I've said so. I am claiming my own authority here, and there is no greater authority. So stop asking questions, basically is what you're saying. But that goes on everywhere uh, for all kinds of uh, faith and belief systems. Scripture itself proves to be the Word of God. It is the Word of God, and God does confirm His own Word. Grudem said on page uh, 38, and I'm guessing that I took this out of his systematic uh, introduction to systematic theology, the big book. He says, how then does a Christian or anyone else choose among the various claims for absolute authorities? And ultimately, the truthfulness of the Bible will commend itself as being far more persuasive than other religious books, such as the Book of Mormon or the Quran or than any other intellectual constructions of the human mind, such as logic, human reason, sense, experience, sense experience, scientific methodology, etc. It will be more persuasive because in the actual experience of life, all these other candidates for ultimate authority are seen to be inconsistent or to have shortcomings that disqualify them, when the Bible will be seen to be fully in accord with all that we know about the world around us, about ourselves, and about God. The Bible will commend itself as being persuasive in this way. That is, if we are thinking rightly about the nature of reality, our perception of it, and of ourselves, and our perception of God. The trouble is that because of sin, our perception and analysis of God and creation are faulty. Therefore, it requires the work of the Holy Spirit overcoming the effects of sin to enable us to be persuaded that the Bible is indeed the Word of God and that the claims it makes for itself are true. No matter how hard you argue, no matter how you formulate an argument or a case, you'll never convince anybody because every heart, every mind has been warped, has been tainted by sin. And it's not capable of hearing this divine message from God until God works in the heart and the mind to give it ears to hear. C.H. Spurgeon said the word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose. And the lion will defend itself. This does not imply dictation from God as the sole means of communication. Some people think when we're talking about God inspiring the Word of God that that, that means He just sat down and said, Okay, Moses, take a letter. You know, now there are some places where God did that. Uh, can you think of a couple? Revelation. Revelation. Letters to the churches, right? Write this down. You know, take this down. But that's not the way that the inspiration worked. It says that it's breathed out by God. Inspired means breathed out. When, when you think about when you're talking, you know, you're talking, 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 talking. What's happening? Breathing, breathing out. You're breathing out. You're not breathing in, aren't you? You know? I think it was Ernest T. Bass. You, you, brought, you got me on Ernest T. Bass tonight. 
Ernest T. Bass talks through his nose, and he said he does that on purpose so that he can he can uh, talk while he's eating. He can breathe through his nose and talk through his nose. He can do that while he's eating. See? So, but with us, most of us normal people, we're when we're talking, we're breathing out. You can keep talking, 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 just like singing. If you're singing and you hold a note for a long time, eventually you're going to have to stop because you run out of air, right? When God inspired, He breathed out His Word, His desires, His truth, and it inhabited these vessels that He used to write and pen those words to put them in ordinary language so we could understand, gain this revelation from God. Luke mentioned this in the first chapter uh, right out of the gate he describes this very phenomenon this way he said inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses ministers of the word have delivered them to us it seemed good to me also having followed all things closely for some time past to write an orderly account to you or for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certain certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So he's describing this, that he's been impressed to pen these words that he's writing, to share the account of the things that have been, that they've witnessed and seen. The word of God is, or God himself is inspiring this and communicating his truth through these faithful vessels. Last week we said there's 66 books in the Bible, 40 different writers over a period of about 1,500 years. And the message is the same. The message is consistent. Now, try as hard as you might as human beings to organize something of that nature would be almost impossible, practically impossible. I've tried to do that. Years ago, we wrote, um, the church I was in in Oklahoma, we decided to do a, a version of our doctrinal studies. You know, you have, we have Baptist faith and message. Well, we had one quarter, we had taught the Baptist faith and message. And two or three years later, we said, we want to go back and do that again because we had new people coming in and we wanted to keep it fresh in people's minds. And we decided, rather than just repeating Baptist faith and message, that we identified several people and we would write lessons on the doctrines that, that we wanted to study. And, and so we did, and I had to coordinate all that. And it was a pain. I, you know, I wished I had stayed with the Baptist faith and message. <laughs> Just organizing you know, six or eight or nine people to write these lessons and prepare them so that they could be distributed to everybody. I can't imagine 40 writers, 66 books over a period of 1,500 years. But that's exactly what God did. And he did it by keeping each of the writer's personalities intact. He did not violate or change their personalities. Again, not dictation, you know, where it's, where it's coming uh, without the, uh, the filtering of those personalities, but in conjunction with it and still offering uh, a word that was truth coming from him. We know that we have uh, different types of writings in the Bible. We have the Pentateuch, we have historical writings, we have wisdom uh, writings, poetry, prophets, gospels, letters, and apocalyptic literature. 
And as I said earlier, to disbelieve or disobey any word of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. Now, thinking about the truthfulness of Scripture, can God lie? No, he can't. Uh, where did I get to? Vera, if you'll look up Titus chapter 1, verse 2. Phil, if you'll look up Hebrews 6, 17 and 18. Linda, if you'll do Psalm 12, verse 6. Steve, Proverbs 30, verse 5. David, Psalm 119, 89. Paul, Matthew 24, 35. You want one, Daniel? Sure. John 17, 17. Audrey, would you like one? Yeah. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. JC, Revelation 22, 18. And maybe a couple of verses after that. I'll have to hear you read it. Okay. All right, Vera. Titus 1, verse 2. Our faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. Okay, you said God doesn't lie. Did you say that because you just believe that? You know, you've assumed that? Or did you know that verse in the Scripture? I mean, God takes a couple of occasions to tell us, I don't, I don't lie, I tell the truth. Phil? Fearing God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the unchangeability of his counsel conformed it by an oath that by two unchangeable things in which it was impossible for God to lie we might have a strong consolation who has fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us I mean he is the essence of truth right there's no truth apart from God God is truth his very character is true. So to speak a lie, to communicate a lie, to tell a lie, think a lie, would be an antithesis to who he is. It's, it's not possible for God to lie. He, he makes it plain in his scripture. Linda? Psalm 12, 6. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. Steve? Proverbs 30, verse 5. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. What was mine? Psalm 1 and what? 119, Give us Matthew 24, 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. You got it? All right. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. All the words in Scripture are completely true and without error in any part. God claims they're all true. He's incapable of lying. If he inspired it all, then we can trust it all, right? 
1717. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. God's word is not simply true. It's not an adjective that's used there. It's a noun. You, you are, your word is truth, the truth. The Bible is not conformed, um, is not just conformed to some higher level of truth. It is the final standard of truth. So you can't appeal to a higher authority. In spite of everything that a lost world may want to say we need to do, it's not possible. You can't. Uh, you can do all the higher criticism you want to, and it still doesn't doesn't beg a higher authority than the Word of God itself. Pluralism, relativism uh, in our modern society is at odds with this claim. Uh, it's one of the reasons that people don't want to hear. Our, you know, our people do not want, when we talk about authority, people don't want to talk about that, do they? We, we are into self-autonomy. That's where we are. That's what we've got with this pluralistic society that we have. What we're saying with that crossed with relativism is that it's only important what you think you want to believe. You know, you believe what you want to believe and you're perfectly uh, legitimate to do that and no one can argue or tell you anything different. There's no higher authority than you for you. That's what society says today. And that's the antithesis of what God tells us in his word. Postmodernism contends that there's no such thing as absolute truth. But that very claim, which you'll hear very often, that there's no such thing as absolute truth, is an absolute truth claim. It is. They always contradict themselves. So, <clears throat> might some new fact ever contradict the Bible? No? Somebody say, yeah. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. The implication there is that God has spoken to us through the prophets of old and the final word has come in the form of Jesus Christ and that there is nothing, there is nothing else coming. There is no new word to follow that. Revelation 22, 18, and I'll stop you when I want you. 19, too. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> For I testify that every man that hears the words of the, uh, the prophecy of this book, if any man shall add, until these things, God shall add unto him the plague that are written in the book. And if any man shall take away from these words of the book of the prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things that which are written in the book. So you don't add or take away from the scripture. That's why, this is why it's so critically important. You know, we have this we have this epidemic that's going on even in evangelical world today where churches are compromising the word of God. They are substituting a, popular, a populist message that uh, caters to felt needs 
in people's lives, you know, how to be a better this, how to be a better that, how to survive in this world. All these self-help uh, therapy sessions that churches are doing instead of going to the Word of God. And what we're doing is that we're adding to the Word of God and we're taking away from the Word of God. We take things out. We say, well, you know, it may be in there, but I don't like it, so I'm not going to listen to it or I'm not going to apply it to my life. Or you might as well just be ripping pages out. That's the way we're treating the Word of God. And God gives a stern warning. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. Just tell them what's there. And it may be boring you know, for some people, but from my perspective as a pastor, it's safe ground. You know, it's safe ground. And, and my prayer and my earnest, my earnest desire every week is to make sure God don't let me add to or take away from your word. I just want to be a faithful, you know, explainer of what you've said. You know, that's all that I'm called to do. Not to jazz it up, make it more palatable, or to say, well, you know, people don't like to hear this, so I need to do something different, or I need, you know, or apologize for it. Think about, think about that, how many times that we actually take on an attitude of apology for how the Word of God says things. You know, we're constantly trying to, to defend, uh, you know, the Word of God against uh, feminism or transgenderism or any of these isms that are going on today by saying, well, you know, maybe we need to come up with a Bible where we take all these personal uh, masculine pronouns out. Well, God put them in there. He put them in there. Who are we to think we need to change them? Because the culture says, well, it's not acceptable. You know, we live in a different world today. We're more sophisticated. We're, we've progressed, and God needs to catch up. That's pretty dangerous ground for me. All right, moving ahead. Let's think about inerrancy of Scripture. Are there errors in the Bible? Yeah. What? No. Yes? No? No? Is that your final answer? It depends. It depends. <laughs> yeah, this is a sticky one. Inerrancy. Um, it's a word that we don't use very much. means no error without error. Uh, inerrancy of Scripture means that the Scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything which is contrary to fact. It's a pretty good definition. I'll read it again. Inerrancy of Scripture means that Scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything which is contrary to fact. Now, this definition does not mean that the Bible tells us every fact there is to know about any one subject, but it affirms that what it does say about any subject is true. You know, there are people that will say, well, you know, the Bible says so-and-so about geography over there, and that's just not accurate. Or, you know, the Bible said, you know, for years they talked about there was no such person as Daniel, there was no such king as Nebuchadnezzar, and that that was just a concoction that somebody wrote later on almost to the New Testament times you know to make some kind of point um, you know and impress people but what happens you know archaeologists keep working digging and suddenly they run across something that some artifacts that come out of the ground that talks about a King Nebuchadnezzar uh, and, you know all of a sudden it changes the whole perspective 
the Bible does not claim to be a book of science or math, but where it speaks to those things, it does so accurately. And it's been proven over and over and over again that it does. Um, there, are some, there are some things there that we need to keep in mind when, when we're thinking about, for instance, someone will say, well, the Bible says that the sun rose in the east, and we know the sun doesn't rise in the east, does it? The earth spins on its axis, okay? So that's wrong. That's what the critics would say. That's wrong. That, that's an error in the Bible. If God, God knows that. Well, God spoke in human language. He communicated to us in human language. If he had said back in Joshua's day, you know, that the sun doesn't rise in the east, and he'd said, well, you know, the earth spins on its axis, and, you know, it appears that the sun comes up out of the east, but actually the sun hasn't moved. It's the earth moving around the sun. It would have really been confusing, would it not? For people that, you know, flat earths and all that kind of stuff, you know, going on, right? So God spoke in a language that people could understand, a common language. Um, and, and so some of these small things may, you know, we can sit here and nitpick them and say, well, that's not correct. But it, it wasn't incorrect because he was using the language that people knew, okay? But there wasn't anything factually wrong with what what's said when those things are done. God is communicating his truth. And so if you're looking for a nitpick error, and, and uh, the, we're talking about the original manuscripts. This is going to be another issue here in a minute. What about the original? What does original manuscripts mean? First one, original manuscripts. And people are going to say, James. what? King James. No, it goes a little further back. King James Version is good enough. We're talking about some of those scrolls that roll out this way. Yeah. Uh, uh, let's see. I'm a, got, got ahead of myself here. Uh, something else, too, that gets um, a little bit too much airtime on some of these things is that, um, you know, the Bible may use an exact figure in one place and it may use something that is approximate in another place. Uh, for instance, we'll take one that it doesn't really do this, but I'll give you an example with it. When uh, uh, Jesus fed 5,000 men with the fish and loaves, okay, could it have been 4,993 men or 5,006 men? Sure. It could. In the Old Testament, you find some of those things where, you know, you get a rounded figure here and over here maybe a little bit more exact, you know, and people say, well, that's an error. Well, it's not an error. Given the context of what was spoken there, we do this all the time. You might say, you know, I, um, I live about 15 miles from here. So I get in my car. If you went out with me tonight and we drove up and you'd say, 16.2 miles. You lied. No, I didn't lie. It's about 15 miles, right? I mean, that's not a lie. 
I mean, if you're asking me, give me the exact mileage, and I said, you know, 15, then okay, you've got me. But if you said, how far is your house? I'd say about 15 miles. There's, there's nothing. Uh, there's nothing misleading about that. You know, there's no lie there. And so there are places in Scripture where that kind of uh, communication is going on, and people are trying to fit these things together and compare them when they really shouldn't. There's some small issue of not a grammatical perfection or uh, something about the speech pattern that um, that allowed for that question to arise. You know, you got to factor in that writers are different, their personalities are different, the various backgrounds they came from, some of them educated, uneducated. God did not clean up all their personalities and their educational uh, capabilities in order to do this. He used what they what they were as a person, and he communicated to communicate his truth to his people. Uh, Acts chapter 4, verse 13, when uh, Peter and John were brought before the Sanhedrin because they were preaching the resurrection, and, and what did they say to them? Or, I mean, what, what happened right there? The leadership of the Sanhedrin says that they looked at these men and they perceived that they were uneducated, common men. You know, and yet, you know, God called them and used them and, and penned a portion of the New Testament through them. How did he do that exactly? Well, I don't know. Did Peter sit down and write? Did he have somebody write it for him and he just told them what the Lord impressed upon him? We don't know that. But we know that his personality, the good old impetuous Peter, was the guy that God used with all those flaws and imperfections just like he did with Paul. Paul was erudite, trained, educated in the uh, in the rabbinical law and uh, in the scriptures, and yet Paul could write a run-on sentence that could make any English teacher blush, you know, and he did. Um, but God used the context of their personality to communicate the truth that He wanted to us to hear, and He did so uh, faithfully. Uh, some current challenges to inerrancy. Some people will say the Bible's only authoritative for faith and practice, so the things that don't have to do with faith and practice that it speaks to are off limits and shouldn't be, shouldn't be brought up. Uh, what this does is creates, creates an expectation that there are falsehoods in the Bible, and that's not true. Uh, infallible and inerrant were at one time used as synonyms, but not so much any longer. Recently, infallible is weaker, as in the Bible will not lead us astray in matters of faith and practice. We, face, we focus on those then we don't worry about those other things and that's just not true uh, the response we've already read these verses 2 Timothy 3.16 all scriptures inspired of God you can't get away from that word all all scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching for correcting again that which was bent and we read these others Psalm 12.6 Psalm 119.19 96 Proverbs 30 and 5. The Bible does not put any restrictions on the kind of subjects to which it speaks. The term inerrancy, some will say, is a poor term. That it's too precise, that it denotes a kind of absolute scientific precision that we don't want to claim for Scripture. You believe that? They also claim that since the term inerrancy is not used in Scripture, we shouldn't use it either. Well, then we've got to quit using Trinity. We've got to quit using Incarnation. Uh, there's other words that we have to stop using if that's the litmus test. Mm -hmm. 
The response to, to this objection is that the term has been used for more than 100 years. Users have always allowed for the limitations that attach to speech in ordinary language, and we often use non-biblical terms to summarize a biblical teaching. Uh, another complaint, we have no inerrant manuscripts. We have none of these original manuscripts, so how do we know? How can we trust this? How, do you, how would you respond to that? Well, you got no original manuscripts, so, so we don't have any inerrant documents. We can't, we can't confirm. How would, you, how would you engage that objection? Rudum gives you a great illustration. Well, critical study of Scripture is, is so... Uh, if you look at how the New Testament documents are, have been examined by various people and the science, the science has gone into that, I mean, the, going back to the earliest manuscripts that we have, we have over 5,000 manuscripts or fragments of Scripture. And when you compare one with the other and you keep going back and going back, you finally reach a point that says, okay, there's no need to go any further because the evidence points that this is the equivalent of an original manuscript. That's right. Um, how many of you have been to see the, uh, the original U.S. Constitution? Anybody been to see it? The original? The original. Are you sure it was the original? No. Well, they told me it was. <laughs> it, it was. Never watched National Treasure? Uh, <coughs> what do you got? You got the, the original. <coughs> the original is in the um, National Archives in Washington, D.C. That's the one I saw. Okay. Good. <laughs> but, I, but I was in Washington, D.C., so I don't really know. <laughs> I mean, that's a contradiction within itself. Yeah, everything's fake up there. You know that. National Archives is where the original is held. But let's say something tragic happens and the National Archives gets obliterated and with it goes the U.S. Constitution. How could you know what the U.S. Constitution says? Because I have a copy of it myself. You have a copy of it. Can you imagine how many copies of the U.S. Constitution there are around? You gather all those, com those copies together and you begin to compare. And where there is commonality, you realize you've got, you can say that word belongs because we've got all these copies and they all agree that that, that word is in there. And you do that for every word. And that's what Bob is describing has gone on for our text. Yes, we do not have original manuscripts, but we've got thousands upon thousands of copies of manuscripts. And scholars for years have been comparing these and finding word-for-word word comparison back so far that they know now, hey, this is what was said in the original document. You know, this is what was said. Within 99-point-something percent probability. I mean, it's, it's just not, you know. And where there might be something, let's say, for argument's sake, that something, that point-whatever-it-is percent didn't match up, the, the errors are so infinitesimal that they, they affect no doctrine, none of the truth. I mean, well, all you have that has provided any, should we say, errors in Scripture are copyist errors uh, at best. 
where a word gets, uh, letters get transposed or something of that. Copy, but in the original manuscripts, we have almost absolute proof that we know what were in those documents. Jerry? Yes, sir. I, I think one thing that we have to be careful of is, is not to overstate the case because when you're moving from the original language, whether it's Hebrew or Aramaic or Greek, into a new language, it's virtually impossible to get, I mean, because, for example, Hebrew is going to be much more short in its statement than, say, English, and the same is true with Greek into English. And so we have to be careful not to overstate our case for people so that they, you know, you can't make the statement, the word the is the original word. Because I think when we overstate that, it opens the door for people to be able to, to debate something that's really not important. Well, I think that's what he says in his definition, is that, that there's nothing um, that is not accurate uh, to truth. That there's no fact that's, um, where, did I, where did I have that? Inerrancy means that scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything which is contrary to fact. Um, so, you know, I, I can appreciate the point. I, I think the kind of scholarship that's been invested, we can feel pretty confident uh, in how it's been translated even and the providence that God has used to preserve it all through. But I, I get what you're saying, that we don't want to get into an argument over iotas, jots and tittles, you know, when what we want to look at is the truth itself, what's God communicating here. Um, we're not. Yeah, Mark, Mark made a great point there. Uh, and also, uh, when we engage in a persuasive enterprise with non believers in, in trying to communicate the gospel, one of the things we want to be careful of is not to, if, if we don't have to convince a non believer of the <coughs> Yeah, we don't have to defend it. We've talked about that, about uh, just unleash it. You know, that God is the one who's going to do the convincing. So I'm confused here because inerrancy has nothing to do with translations. Inerrancy is in the original manuscripts which were either in Hebrew, Aramaic, or Greek, not in English. Well, that's and that's what we're saying. Yeah, I, I misunderstood what you said. Yeah, I was just trying to make the point that we, I think I've already made the point. We just, we want to be careful. I mean, even if you translate from English into another What language, Mark's saying is that you don't want to get into an argument with somebody about you may be arguing with a Hebrew scholar that says that's not what that verse or that word's not in the Hebrew mm -hmm. you know that you have in your English Bible okay but the definition we're talking about has to do with original manuscripts and we know we we know what was in the original manuscripts within a very small window let me finish up this uh, inerrancy section and we're not entirely caught up but we are getting closer uh, problems with denying inerrancy, the problem that comes with a denial of biblical inerrancy are not insignificant. When we understand the magnitude of these problems, it gives us further encouragement not only to affirm inerrancy, but also to affirm its importance for the church. Uh, these are some of the more serious problems associated with denying inerrancy. One, if we deny inerrancy, a serious moral problem confronts us. May we imitate God and lie. In other words, if we deny inerrancy, we're calling God a liar, in essence, and so are they, we then going to say that we should imitate God? Ephesians 5.1 says, be imitators of God. So should we too then lie? You see, that's, 
that's kind of ridiculous, Pastor. But, I mean, when you play this out, that's exactly what you're putting yourself in position to do. <clears throat> if uh, inerrancy is denied, we begin to wonder if we really can trust God in anything He says. If He's not truthful in these small things that are insignificant, how can we trust Him in the, in the more important things? If we deny inerrancy, we essentially make our own human minds a higher standard of truth than God's Word itself. Uh, dangerous ground, and that's one that, that modern society is uh, eager to take on, uh, but that we think it's not possible, you know, it's not possible for a large fish to swallow a man and keep him in there three days and keep him alive, so therefore I reject this. Well, you know, if God is who God claims to be by the Word of God, then nothing is impossible, he says, right? But we want to put our, elevate our minds, our thought processes above uh, the Word of God. If we deny inerrancy, we must also say that the Bible is wrong, not only in minor details, but also in some of its doctrines as well. Where do you draw the line and say there's no more errors, you know, or they have no more impact? So the written scripture is our final authority. It's the final form in which the scripture is authoritative, it's popular in some circles today uh, and always has been. Uh, there's a lot of controversy today with, uh, with some prolific uh, celebrity Christians out there that God told me this. You know, God told me. Uh, You've got to be careful with that. Um, you know, in the Old Testament days, if God told you something and it didn't come to pass, you know, you, you died. Uh, that's just the way it was. Uh, and so people treat it a little bit more casually today because, well, we live in the New Testament. We live under grace, so no, no harm, no foul. But still, you're speaking for God, and you're claiming something that God said, and that's just dangerous. You know, if it's not in the Word of God, you shouldn't claim it. You know, you shouldn't claim it. Is it possible for God to speak to us through other Christians, through the church, you know, through circumstances, as Henry Blackaby would say, yes, God can communicate His desires for us through using different things. But our ultimate authority is always the Word of God. And we better be careful to go back and, you know, if I'm getting my, if I'm getting my marching orders for life because Paul's speaking into my life, I'm setting myself up for a, for a huge problem. Yes. Not to mention how I'm... I'm uh, dismissing God or any of the others or anybody else or a human being standing in a pulpit, you know, saying, you know, preaching and doing things. And that's one of the problems we have in our culture today that we've created these, this celebrity culture, even in Christianity, that's dangerous, I think, because the, the power of the personality has become so big that we, we take what they say without going back to the Word of God and comparing it and saying, is that what God said or is that what He said God said? And it's just something that I think is uh, is harming the church today. So we need to be careful to attribute it, not to be very careful to attribute anything to God that is not in His Word. And I'm going to stop there. Wow. And we will pick up with uh, the clarity, necessity, and sufficiency of Scripture next week. Question. Con comments. <clears throat>